And we do thank God for grace. It is the cornerstone by which we have reason to meet. It is our foundation for hope. It is that which carries us from death to life. It is important that we stay true uh, and resist changes to uh, the doctrine of salvation by grace. As we have sung, uh, it is in Christ alone. Uh, It is imperative that we stay true to the base requirements of salvation and not add to them. It is the difference between having water and mostly water. You know, I, if I'm, I'm, I'm thirsty, I want water. And if someone says it's, it's mostly water, <laughs> that can mean any number of things, couldn't it? I mean, what if it's just a little drop of cyanide? But mostly water. I, that changes everything by what you add to it. And so I just want to present to you that the gospel is like that. And it is, it is in fact, the gospel when it is only the gospel with nothing added to it. And we live in a day and age where, uh, you know, folks can create uh, denominations and can create religions. Uh, that, that happens. Um, and, and we think not much about that. And, oh, here's another religion that's been formed. Uh, what would you say if I brought to your attention, hey, you know what, we've got a new revelation. Uh, you, you just happen to be part of the church body where, the, where me as the pastor, I've, I've received a revelation. And the last few nights I've had a series of revelations from uh, the angel uh, Molech, um, and he's given me this this new uh, this new understanding. And let me just explain to you this new understanding. And and fortunately enough, it it camps on the New Testament, but adds a good bit to it. Uh, and let me just share with you how this unfolds for us. Uh, I I hope you'd have bells ringing here and and caution flags flying everywhere, and that you're maybe looking uh, in. Uh, online to see what other churches are out there, okay? Um, because when I start doing things like that, I've crossed a major, major line theologically. Uh, I've, I'm, I'm crossing up now with how we know about salvation, how we know truth from, from the lie. And when we look at other religions, interesting enough, a lot of times it goes back to someone saying something like that. And maybe they use more sophisticated languages. And maybe they go into greater detail as to what this other revelation looks like. And maybe they write a book about it and call it the sacred writings. And maybe there will be uh, quite a few other folks who, who will follow along with it and, and grab hold of that. And follow it too. Maybe in fact there would be a billion people that would follow it. It doesn't change the fact that out of the heart there is... Things added to the gospel without good diligence as to seeing why it's added to the gospel. We need to be very careful here. And so it's with this thought in mind, I want to take you to Galatians chapter 2. And uh, the, the theme of the book of the Galatians is the gospel of grace. Uh, we saw in the first chapter, he introduces the two themes of the entire book, defending his authority as presenting this gospel of grace and then uh, the gospel of freedom, the gospel of grace itself initiated by God, not mankind. And so we're going to see this throughout the entire book. And in chapter 2, he's certainly developing this idea of defending his role before the believers and how God has given this gospel to the church. 
and chapter 1, Paul used some of the strongest language you'll ever find in the Bible uh, concerning those who disagree with this gospel of grace. In fact, what had happened in the day and time is that there's some people who are coming alongside and, and they're adding to it and just saying, you know, well, this New Testament, what Paul is teaching, it's, it's okay for a second-hand apostle. But let me give you a more complete picture coming from Jerusalem and that if you want to be a follower of Christ, you need to still hold on to uh, the, the Jewish festivals. You need to follow the law. You need to be circumcised if you want to be right with God. You can't just forsake these things. And that's what he was presenting. And Paul saying, you know, they're just adding to the gospel. What, but what they're adding changes the inherent quality. It is, in fact, another gospel. Not that there is another gospel. This is the language he's using. In fact, he says, let what they are saying, let them, street language, but yet truth with what the scripture is saying, let them go to hell. That's the word anamapha, that curse. Very strong language. Uh, if anyone else, if I had said that, you would be, you know, ready to kick me out. Um, but that's what Paul is saying, but he, but there's sometimes that term is fitting. Because it is a doctrine that comes from hell. And he's saying, let it go back to hell. This, this idea that robs the way of salvation and make it instead dressed up religious pride. We have to be careful. And so, in Galatians chapter 2, he is continuing this idea. And we find in chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, what we'll study to this morning, that there is an evaluation that takes place. There is an accountability it's not one man coming in saying, I got a dream, I got a vision, let me just share with you what it is and everybody following. But instead we find that there is one man who says there has been a revelation given to him by God, but yet there is an evaluation that takes place among the other apostles. That this happens not, uh, not from the teaching of Peter and James and John and some of these things, but, but Paul has been independent from them, but yet not separate. He is unified with them. And so when it comes time for peer review, if you will, uh, Paul and what he's teaching is approved by Peter, by John, the apostles, those in Jerusalem, they approve and understand that there is unity with what they're teaching. And I'm going to tell you, that's critical for us. That's critical for us. And so uh, with this thought in mind, I just want to share with you some, some three truths that come about the gospel presented to us from this passage, Galatians 2 verse 1 through 10, and in honor of this being God's word, let's stand as we read this together. Then, after four years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I... And proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even T Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And for those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. 
On the contrary, when they saw that I had been trusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been trusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through, through me for mine to the Gentiles. When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. You may be seated. I just want to first present to you this one truth that flows from Galatians 1, I believe is as a thread in this second chapter, and that's simply this. There is only one gospel. There is only one gospel. There is only one good news. And we saw in chapter 1 how it is the fact that God saved us. All the religions that we look at across the world today, there has been no variety in the, uh, no variety in the essential aspect of this. And that is that if you looked at other religions, it's always how we have to perform some works. Whether it's certain meditations, um, whether it's the letting go of coveting desires, or whether it's to say that uh, we're going to pray five times a day and give to the poor and make a trip uh, to Mecca, uh, whatever it is, there's usually just different expressions of the same. And we can find it in the Baptist religion as well, if we're not careful, that if you just do these certain standards, then you'll be right with God. If you add to the gospel, you've created another gospel. What we have in Jesus Christ is saying, you know what? If it isn't for Jesus Christ coming and saving us, we would all drown because the gulf between us and God is greater than us on one side of the ocean to the other side if we were trying to go to Morocco and swim there. It doesn't matter how far some of us swim, it, the gulf is too great. Some may swim a mile, but there's thousands of miles yet to go. And unless someone comes alongside and puts us in their boat to take us to the other side, there is no other way of getting there. And so God comes along and says, I gift it to you through grace. Not because you deserve it, because out of my nature, I want to use you to display my glory and show you my love and I forgive you. And so it's been said, if if heaven isn't a gift then there is no getting in. It is all by the grace of God. And so that is the one gospel given to us in chapter 1. And in chapter 2, he says, you know what? I, I, I'd gotten this by revelation. I wasn't with the Jerusalem fellas. I met with them for just a little over a week, talked with a few guys, and I went on my way and I served elsewhere. And then we come to chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years... And went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. All right. So the point he's trying to make is, I've been independent from the Jerusalem church. Okay. That's the point he's trying to make. And so he takes Barnabas. He's the as known as the son of encouragement. He takes Titus, who is a Greek. And in fact, yes, there is a book named after him in the Bible. And it, he addresses Titus, Paul does, as his son. Uh, not biological, but a son in the faith. And verse 2, I went up because of a revelation set before them. Notice the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. Now, this incident could very well be the incident found in Acts chapter 11, verse 27 through 30. Some There's debate about this, whether it's the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 
or the incident occurs in Acts 11. I believe it's Acts 11. Let me just kind of sum it up. God gives by revelation there's going to be a famine in Jerusalem uh, given through one of the prophets, Agabus. And so it is uh, determined that the believers should bring together an offering to help support the believers in Jerusalem, sending relief. And so Barnabas and Paul were sent uh, to bring this relief to them financially. Um, and so here they come, and they, and they meet them, and they proclaim the gospel among the Gentiles, all right? To make sure, notice what he says, to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain. In other words, he wanted to make sure that his gospel, that he was teaching the Gentiles, was in accord and unified with what was understood in Jerusalem by Peter, uh, by James, by John, that, that the church was indeed one because he was not into splitting up the church, all right? It's hard for us to get a grasp on this because we live with so many denominations. We don't know anything else. But you need to understand that for hundreds of years, there were not other denominations. There was just the Christian church. Uh, Then you got the split between the East and the West. And then later on in the 1500s, the Reformation that comes and and splits with Martin Luther and Zwingli and then John Calvin. And then you got this other off-branch, the Anabaptists. And and, and so what you've got today is these multitude of different expressions of of what we know as the Christian church. But for hundreds of years, that was not the case. And we think that it's one to say, hey, we're going to create two different gospels here. It was important to understand doctrinal unity. Now, uh, that's one thing that we've lost matter anymore. And we think that it, of doctrinal unity. We, we live in where there's so much division that it just doesn't matter anymore. And we think that, that it doesn't matter important doctrine anymore. In fact, we'll use words like uh, we, need to, we need to preserve the richness of the, the diversity of religion. We'll, we'll talk about the great tapestry of theology. And how they complement. But usually, what we've got here is this word for diversity is often sometimes a euphemism for contradiction. Let's preserve the richness of contradictions. And, and just understand that it's okay uh, to allow these contradictions to exist. And that may be true in America. And I would hardly recommend that for America because that's the principles that America is... is is, is preserving and living for. But that's not, you know, before I'm an American, get this, I'm a believer. I'm a Christian before I'm an American. America is good, I'm proud to be American, but America will not save me. Christ saves me. And so, as I look at this as a believer, I've got to look at it different from being American. It's okay for America to have contradictions. But it's not okay for the church of Christ to live with these contradictions concerning their faith, the the core doctrines of what they believe. Very few people stand up and praise unity and consistency of the truth. And so what does this look like? Well, we equate being relativistic with humble. We'll say things, don't be so arrogant as to believe there is one way to God. And so if you have relative perspectives on truth, then you're just being humble. That's how it has come about. Well, I look at Paul's example here, and I find 
that he doesn't compromise on this. He compromises on many things. He's the one who says, I I became as a a Jew to the Jews and as a Gentile, I became as a Gentile. I became all things to all men that by my all all means win some. And so he knows how to compromise. The the difference is you got to know what to compromise in. And so we see he does not compromise in this key area that there is one gospel. He says, I don't want to run in vain. We need to make sure that there is unity of the doctrine. And I've shared with you as you come in and join our church body, if God leads you to do that, one of the things I share with you in our new members class is this, there's a core doctrine that unites our church body. You cannot come in believing something different from a core doctrine and thinking you're going to change our church. It doesn't work that way because you're not one with us because the very thing that unites us is that which we preserve. It is uh, critical to hold on to the core doctrine of salvation of the, of the Word of God and of the Gospel. So, that's his idea. I think about this. Um, I was reading to our staff a, um, a, a script that came from a TV show. Um, and I think it probably displays the problem that we have when the gospel becomes watered down. It's from the NBC show ER. I'm not an ER fan. I don't watch it. I don't like hospital shows. I don't like being in the hospital. I don't want to... That's another story. Okay. Um, but nonetheless, this comes from uh, this, this episode... Um, there's a man who's dying from cancer, a retired police officer, and he brings in a hospital chaplain. He confesses to his long-held guilt of allowing an innocent man to be framed and executed. Now, you understand a hospital chaplain, they can't, they can't hold to, or they can't display and teach one true gospel. They have to believe in the richness of diversity and contradictions and everything else. And so he asks this simple question, how can I even hope for forgiveness? The chaplain replies, I think it's sometimes it's easier to feel guilty than forgiven. Which means what? Well, that maybe your guilt over his death has become your reason for living. Maybe you need a new reason to go on. I don't want to go on, says the dying man. Can't you see that I'm dying? The only thing that is holding me back is that I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what comes next. What do you think that is? The chaplain gently inquires. Growing impatient, the man answers, You tell me. Is atonement possible? What does God want from me? After the chaplain replies, I I think it's up to each one of us to interpret for ourselves what God wants. The man stares at her in in bewilderment. So people can do anything? They can rape? They can murder, they can steal, all in the name of God, and it's okay. Growing intense, the dialogue draws to its climax. No, that's not what I'm saying, the chaplain responds. Then what are you saying? Because all I'm hearing is some new age, God is love, have it your way, bam, what, I'm not going to say. No, I don't have time for this now. You don't understand, the chaplain counters. No, you don't understand. I want a real chaplain who believes in a real God and a real hell. Missing the point of this man's struggle, the chaplain collects herself and says in the familiar tone of condensation disguised as understanding. I hear that you're frustrated, but you need to ask yourself 
No, the man erupts. I don't need to ask myself anything. I need answers. And all of your questions and all of your uncertainty are only making things worse. No more to evaluate than his tone. She encourages calm. I know you're upset, she begins, provoking his final outburst of frustration. God, I need someone who will look me in the eye and tell me how to find forgiveness, but I'm running out of time. Amazingly, the writers of this show portrays the heart of the problem. God comes in to a world sinking in an ocean of their sin. And other people are coming and say, if you swim this way and swim this way, and maybe if your desires are just right, and, and maybe if you can just stay pure with what you know. And God is saying, you know what's needed is not a better swim stroke, but what is needed for you to understand that there is salvation in Jesus Christ and there is no other boat coming. And those who have gotten into the boat to understand the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ need to speak truthfully for what they are in. That we are not saved because of some good works that were done. We're not saved because we're church members. We're not saved because we look better than other people. We're not saved because we don't have tattoos. We're not saved because we don't drink. We're not saved because we give to the poor. We're not saved because we refrain from cussing. We're not saved because we can control our temper somewhat. We're not saved because of these things. We're saved because of Jesus Christ and the grace of God. And But for that, we are the same. Get in the boat with us. There is only one gospel. And Paul is making sure that he's not running in vain because he understands there is one gospel. And so, verse 3, he brings Titus, who was with me. Why did he bring Titus? Titus was a Greek. He was a Gentile. He was not a Jew. He, he was not born in a Jewish family. He wasn't circumcised. He didn't follow the Jewish festivals and laws. He was just a Gentile like you and I. And he got exposed to the grace of God, knew he needed the forgiveness of God, and said, that's me, I want that. And he was forgiven by God. And God is changing his heart, regenerating his heart. The Spirit of God is in him. And Paul is saying, you know, there's a big debate going on whether they need to be circumcised. Let me bring Titus along. He is my case point here. It's not just theoretical. It's practical. It involves people's lives. And so he brings Titus. Verse 4. Kind of takes a little parenthesis. Yet because a false brother secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that we might bring us into slavery. To them, listen, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Paul is saying you don't compromise even for a moment how it is that we are saved by God. Not even for a moment when they're just bringing these subtle changes, but yet the changes drastically impact the nature of the gospel. Why? Why did he not do this? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. (laughs) He understood that if Paul changed his understanding and his teaching here, that we are saved by grace alone, that it would impact generations of believers. That if someone didn't stand firm in that day and time, it could very well be that all of us today... If we want to get right with God, we become Jews. We get circumcised. We go through the Jewish festivals. I'll tell you, new members classes can look vastly different there. Okay? I think it might be harder. Um, But he understood there is something at stake. He says, 
The reason why we do this, why we get circumcised, is not so that we can get saved. It's interesting. If you see what he's saying here with, with Titus, and you can, you can contrast that with how he deals with Timothy in Acts 16.3. Timothy, another disciple of Christ, Instrumental uh, came to the Lord through Paul's ministry. In Acts 16, 3, Timothy gets circumcised. Okay, Paul, what's the deal? You not like Timothy? You have Timothy circumcised. Titus wasn't. (laughs) If I was Timothy, I'd be asking questions. Why? Well, here's the difference. Timothy's mother was a Jew. Who he was made a difference. And the reason for circumcision was different. Titus, the question was, do I need to be circumcised so that I'll be saved? And that's where Paul is very aggressive in saying, by no means, I will not give at one point. In Titus, in Timothy's case, circumcision wasn't revolved around salvation. He understood he was saved and everyone else understood he was saved by the grace of God. So why was he circumcised? So that he could minister to the Jews. So that he could be a missionary to the Jews. So that by all means... He could impact and influence them. Now, you start talking about some uh, sacrifices for ministry. Okay? I was talking about this with Trevor a little bit, and we were just talking about the different cultures. And, and what if God had called you and put a burden uh, in your heart to minister to some people that uh, required you to be tattooed? Ooh. <laughs> Pastor, you're talking about circumcision. I get that. But what about tattoos? You're going to be thinking about that later on. But what you see here is that Paul, when it came to the issue of salvation, why you do what you do matters. Why you do, if it's, if you're, if you're giving to the poor, if you're joining the church today, if you're wanting to be baptized because you hope to be accepted by God because of that, don't do it. It's wrong for you to do it. You're just adding to your pride and adding to your sin. That is the wrong reason. But if you want to be baptized, you want to be a part of the church body, you want to give to the poor, you want to do these things because of what God has done in your life, because He has saved you and God's changed your heart, then praise God, your obedience is worship. You see the difference between these two? T.S. Eliot in the play Murder in the Cathedral had an interesting quote here. The last temptation is the greatest treason. To the right deed for the wrong reason. Do the right deed for the wrong reason. Can be the greatest treason. And so Paul brings Titus along. He says, let's, let's bring him before. And let us understand that he, uh, let's see if he gets required to be a circumcised. Because then it determines the role of grace and salvation. If we had to add this work of, of circumcision, then grace is not grace. Well, let's just see what happens. And so verse 4 and 5, notice that we did not yield in submission even for a moment. And verse 6, and from those who seem to be influential, referring uh, to James and Peter uh, and John, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those I say who seemed influential added nothing. To me, this gospel that Paul had gotten through Revelation, that he'd been now 14 years separated from the Jerusalem church, he comes to the leaders of the Jerusalem church and says, I lay it before you. This is what I've been teaching and preaching. Tell me where I'm wrong. And they could not add anything to it. They agreed. Peter, James, John, the leaders of the Jerusalem church, you're right, Paul. 
You're saved by nothing but by grace alone. And so verse 7. There is one, only one gospel. But verse 7, there are many applications. There are many applications. That's the second truth that I want you to understand from this passage. Notice how it's phrased in 7. On the contrary, when they saw I had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, and you're thinking, now wait a second. Scriptures have said there's two gospels. There's one to the circumcised and one to the uncircumcised. You're just making a big deal about there are only one gospel. The Bible says there's two. What he's talking about here is not the quality of the content. The content's the same. The application's different. What the gospel looks like to circumcise is going to be expressed different than the, the gospel to the uncircumcised. That's going to be expressed differently. Um, sometimes you, you hear this, this question in small group Bible study. And if, and if you have a habit of doing this, take this word as, as, a, as a warning to stop it. <laughs> uh, we don't go to someone and read a passage and say, now, what does this mean to you? What does this mean to you? What's implied is that there's all these different meanings. Let me just present to you, there is one meaning. It is the meaning that the author intended when he wrote it. Our goal is to figure out what that one meaning is. And so we don't read this and think, wow, we got five, ten different meanings from one verse. Friends, you know, if I said a sentence to someone and someone interpreted ten different meanings from what I said, I'm going to say, what's wrong with you? You're not listening. There is one meaning. Let me tell you what it is. Get it. And so what the author is saying is there is one meaning. There is one gospel with many different applications. And so the question really is, is how does this live out? Tell me, how is this lived out? How is this truth lived out in your life? And that will look differently. I, I learned this as I, as I went to different places. Um, and I had um, Maasai believers in, in Kenya ask me, um, Brother, do believers in your church eat pig? I'm like, hey, amen. You know, they all eat pig. You know, I was in Johnson County at that time. And barbecue rained, you know. Um, <laughs> but they're like, they didn't have the response that I thought they would have. They're just, no. We don't eat pig. That is wrong. Like, what? What? You. <laughs> and they were applying some of the things of, of, of Scripture, especially the Old Testament. And they're saying, no, this is just something we as a culture, as believers, knocked out. We're, we're trying to make a stand. They, they don't drink blood. Um, that was a... Uh, a thing that they do, uh, Maasai believers would drink blood um, from the cow, and we, we you know, honestly, I'm not tempted with that, you know, uh, but that's my culture. Their culture is differently. It's, it's a pressure. That's what being a Maasai is, is about. And so, uh, to be a Maasai believer meant something different. There was there was different uh, understanding about marriage commitments in the Maasai, a little bit more loose. Uh, and, and so this was a standard to say, if I'm going to be a Maasai believer, these are the areas that I must be different in because they will stand out. And I found in every country, in every civilization, every culture, to be a believer means something a little bit different. There's a little different points of contact. And one thing I've learned is that the gospel is countercultural to every culture. Every culture. And that lets me know it's not a product of a culture because it's counter to every one of them. It's out of culture. It's from God. It's revealed to mankind. I was uh, 
in our Alpha Bible course, it was brought to my attention the video that Alice Cooper um, became a believer some time ago. And those of you who uh, followed rock, heavy rock in the 80s um, or just you know younger at that time would have heard of Alice Cooper, heavy metal shock, uh, uh, horror, uh, theatrics, and his, his, um, uh, his, his uh, concerts. And uh, he, he made this statement. He said you know, he found that being a believer is the most rebellious thing that he's ever done. He said, you know how easy it is to go to parties and, and go to concerts and get drunk and get high? That's, that's, that's the culture. That's the pressure. I was reading, hearing someone else say that if you really want to be a rebel, you, you just pick up a Bible and read it. Anybody can wear tattoos. It's amazing when you go to the beach. I'm thinking, really? All these people have tattoos? And, and, and anybody can get drunk and anybody can get high. Anybody can sleep around. That's not hard to do. Anybody in our society can do that. Anybody can live for greed and cheat other people out. That's easy to do. Anybody can go gothic and anybody can go homosexual. And anybody can do all these things and fit into some subculture. That's easy to do. But if you want to be counterculture, then it comes back to saying, you know, I believe there's a God and that I'm saved by grace and he is regenerating my heart and I live for another kingdom another place and I don't need these status symbols anymore I don't have to have the latest car to feel better about myself I'm counterculture because I live for another culture and that is the kingdom of God and you're going to find no matter what society you live in it's not going to be easy to be a follower of Christ there will be countercultural moments whether you're in the military or whether you're in the suburbs, whether you're in America, or whether you're in Africa, being a believer is being counterculture. And there are many applications. And so that what we're seeing here is that Peter is being uh, as entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. Paul being entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised is going to look differently. But there's going to be one body. There's going to be one body. Verse 9. James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. In other words, these three pillars of the church grabbed hold of of Paul and Barnabas and said, you're with us. We are on the same page. We are united in common fellowship. There is no division between the Gentile church and the Jewish church. It's one church. So, consequently, verse 10, only they ask us to remember the poor... The very thing I was eager to do. Now, remember, we said in Acts 11, it was revealed by revelation that there's going to be a famine in Judea, that the Jewish believers will be suffering through this famine. And so you'll find in the New Testament that this poor is often equated with being a Jewish believer in Judea. If you're a believer in Judea, you're poor. Because of the famine, because of the persecution that's, that's taken place, because of war that's occurred there. So what they're saying is, okay... Paul, you're to the, you're to the uh, Gentiles, the uncircumcised. But understand, don't forget about the Jewish believers in Judea. We're suffering. We're hurting. And we are one body. So when the believers in Judea are suffering hurt and hurt because of the famine, then the believers in Macedonia and Asia and other places around here of the world are Gentile are to understand they are one together. And so you'll find that much of Paul's ministry that's recorded in Acts is really about fundraising. It's really about gathering the gifts 
of, of folks, of believers in these places and gathering together. In fact, we'll find uh, that the reason he goes to Jerusalem for the last time is so that he can deliver these gifts. There he's arrested and, and ultimately brought to Rome. In fact, we see in, in Rome that in, in, in short, it, it's kind of like a, a big theological uh, letter, but the point of it was to help raise money, give money so that the mission can continue on. Why is that important? Because the believers in Macedonia need to understand that they are one body. One body. And so that's why we have a time of prayer, as we did in the beginning here, to understand that when believers in, in East Asia and the Middle East and Africa and Eastern Europe and other places in Mexico and South America, when they are suffering, we as a body understand we suffer too. We're not separate from one another. And that's important for us to understand. Sometimes as we're ministering here in Nightdale and East Wake, we can get um, church-centric. You know, if it's not green pines, it's nothing. And that's just wrong mentality. And then we start thinking that way within our church. It's not youth ministry, it's subpar. If it's not senior ministry, it's subpar. If it's not, you got your own church. We, we get smaller and smaller and smaller. And here we got Paul and Peter. James, John saying, we're one body. When we hurt, you hurt. And so there, there are many expressions of the gospel. And it looks different in Jerusalem as it does in Antioch and Galatia. There are still some common denominators in these applications. And one of them that's brought out here is that they remember the poor. We go on in Acts 15 and and we'll find there's some other ones, like sexual purity uh, is important and is a common denominator no matter what country you live in, what culture you come from. Sexual purity, uh, remembering the poor, restraining or refraining from idols. We find that there are some common expressions of the gospel in our life. And it's amazing to me how in America we can, uh, we can bank on all the sub-expressions, you know, like Baptism, uh, I don't know if I would call that a sub-expression, but uh, we've got various things like not drinking and how we dress and, and uh, the various uh, personal convictions that we may have. But we as a church can get blind to what the Bible says is core expression of the gospel, such as sexual purity and remembering the poor. You know, it's like if you want to give to the poor, then... That's extra credit. <laughs> you know, that's, if you really want to be good, then you might give to the poor. Um, that's kind of our thinking in that. And that, first of all, it's wrong because credit doesn't matter. We're saved by grace. It's not being better. It's just expressing Christ. Expressing Him. So, with these thoughts in mind, I, that's one of the thoughts that uh, about the Homeless family that uh, church is uh, supporting, Letitia. Uh, I don't know how many times you guys see someone on the streets um, talking about, you know, with a sign up, saying I'm homeless, I need help. And 
more often than not, I don't do anything. I just go on. Um, and we all have different reasons why that's the case, but I, I don't think I'm probably the minority when I, when I say that. I think you guys probably more often than not do the same. My thoughts are, well, I don't know what they're going to do with that money. They're probably spending it on their own desires. That's wasting them away. Maybe they have bad financial habits. I, you know, we assume the worst, don't we? So when I find a family that's in our church, that's exposed to our church body, who's really trying and helps coming alongside uh, to make sure there's not destructive cycles in their life. And this family is exposed to members of our church that will be presenting the gospel to them. My thought is, with every guilty pang I might have when I drive by these folks on the street, why don't I just direct that to this family that I know is being worked with to present the gospel to them. So I would just encourage you, and specifically in this case, there is this month we're giving toward this family uh, to help them. Uh, there's need for three people to be a part of this circle uh, that will come around them and, and be hands-on presenting the gospel, displaying it in front of them. Um, you can talk to Alan Samot, where are you at? Alan Samot. Who else is on the team? Rich and Ashley, um, Gail and Greg Zeckman. Who's that? Debbie. Debbie Holleran. George Uhas. Um, that's just one specific method. But there's many more. But I just want to present to you, there is one gospel. Don't back away from that. Don't back away from it. Let people think you're arrogant. <laughs> Let people think you're narrow-minded. Let them think what they will. They are not your judge and master and savior. Live unto God. Be true to the gospel, knowing that it's the only boat that's coming by to save us. But when we get on that boat... Let the gospel have its full effect in changing our hearts and let every part of our culture come under the dictates of the gospel of Christ and let it change everything of who we are. And understand, this same gospel is working all around the world. I had a a Kenyan brother, Bernard, come up and um, he asked me, he's wanting to start a, a church congregation uh, in Nightdale for um, African believers. Um, and he asked me, you know, if, if we start something like that, you think it would be okay to worship in African style? <laughs> Which, you know, I, I've had knowledge of what that's like. It's very different, okay? You know, it's, it's aerobic. I mean, you get exercise uh, when you're worshiping. They're jumping up and down. And I, I said, please, <laughs> please. Continue with your, with your worship style because being an African believer is different from being an American believer. Let it, let it reside. Let it continue. Jose is working on the Hispanics. Um, whole reason that we're doing this is that they can worship in their heart language. We're not asking them. Uh, we're not doing ESL so that they can learn English so that then they can worship. That doesn't work that way. All right? Otherwise, there's a whole bunch of people that couldn't worship. 
All right. It's, ESL is just a ministry so that we can reach out to them because it's beneficial in this society for them to know it. But we want them to worship in their heart language. And if that means, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon or wherever, let them worship at that time. I'm just, one of the things I'm so pleased about is living where I do. Because we live in a place where there's all types of people around. And worship needs to be as varied as the type of people. But it always goes back to one gospel that flows and produces a kaleidoscope of cultures saturated with the gospel. Various aspects to that but some common points that will go on for eternity you understand that so what does that mean well let me tell you it means there's some things that we don't hold on as sacred worship style is not sacred dress style is not sacred instruments are not sacred even some church organizations is not sacred, only as to what the Bible teaches. And you'll find that the gospel is very absent, very doesn't say much about how we worship as far as the specifics. Talks a lot about heart, the motives. Why is that? So that it can go out cross-culturally in the various ways of worship of the Lord. There's one gospel. One gospel. Hold on to it. Many applications, but one body. One body. And so the question really is, do you know the gospel? Do you believe in the gospel? Are you part of the body? Not the church. As far as Green Pines Baptist, I'm sad to say there's a difference. You can be a member of Green Pines Baptist, not be a part of the body of Christ. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone for the forgiveness of God? Let's pray.